And for the rest of us, if you turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, as we continue this uh, journey through Daniel, as we finished up Daniel in the lion's den last week, and Robin looked at me and said, well, it's been fun, now it gets hard, right? Said, yes, it does. <laughs> now comes the, the tricky part of Daniel. Um, but it is God's word, so let's hear what God has to say. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. And I'm going to stop for just a moment just to remind us of the time setting of where we are. We're actually in between chapters 4 and 5, chronologically. Remember, we're back now to the, the first year of Belshazzar, who is still in Babylon. So we're, we're no longer with Darius in uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. We are back with... Uh, 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 Belshazzar. There we are. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until the thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and his hair and his head like, white, like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking, because the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. And the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. 
But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron, its claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns, which were on its head, and the other horn, which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn, which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings." He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Even we don't understand all of it, Yet we see something of the picture and we see something of the alarm that this gave to Daniel. And we recognize, O God, that you seek uh, to give us this word that we may draw closer to you and that we may trust you more. We pray that you will strengthen our faith. We pray for our children and children's worship and ask that you might draw them to yourself, that the gospel might go forth. And we pray for us that you would change us. In Jesus' name, amen. What is evil? I think it's a valid question. When we say evil, certain things come to mind. The 20th century personification of evil for us is clearly Adolf Hitler, right? And that that comes to our mind, and we think of that, and and rightly so. The deeds which were done uh, at that time throughout this world are indeed uh, horribly evil. But it doesn't necessarily answer that question, what is evil? Uh, in the book uh, Bold Love, written by Dan Allender and Tremper Longman, they, they seek to understand that and uh, to explain what evil is. Um, they, they looked at the book of Proverbs and they thought basically three descriptions of those who are outside of Christ. And uh, one of those would be just the, the, the run-of-the-mill sinner, if you will. And that's an individual who knows God's law, recognizes it's good, but at different times says, yeah, I'm not going to do that, though, and, and lives in sin, and so that's the first. The second is the fool, and the fool, unlike the sinner, doesn't say that God's uh, law is right because he doesn't believe that God exists. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And the third type is the evil person, or what might be spoken of as the scoffer or the mocker. And so they drew this distinction, and in trying to understand what that, that evil was, uh, they gave this description. 
Evil is present when there is a profound absence of empathy, shame, and goodness. Empathy involves a connectedness to the heart of another and a respect for their personal boundaries. An evil person is unmoved by the inner world of the other and has no respect for boundaries. Shame involves an ability to be exposed and disturbed about actual or perceived violations of relationships. An, un, an evil person is unaffected by exposure, so is consequently shameless. Finally, goodness involves a desire to see someone or something grow in strength, freedom, and beauty. An evil person seems to delight in stripping away purpose, individuality, and vitality. In reading their description, one of the things that strikes me is just that, that absence of goodness when I think about evil and trying to understand um, what that involves and that the evil person actually delights when the good is removed. And to, to understand how that is an outworking of evil. I'm sure we're all familiar with the old adage, uh, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? And, and we, we find that to be the case, and, and we recognize just how uh, much power affects us. I remember years ago, if I can quote you, Chris, uh, who said to me that, that power is more addictive than heroin. And just really, I think that there's tremendous truth in that, um, as I have seen it time after time, that as we begin to get a little bit of that power, a little bit of power over other people, we begin to want more and more and more and more, and it becomes something that we, we strive for in our lives. Daniel is given this vision of these four kingdoms that are going to rise up, the four beasts of the four kingdoms. And in each of these kingdoms, the king really had absolute power. And that's one of the things that is the, the difficulty of, of uh, have, being ruled um, by a family or an individual who is in power simply because of their, their, their bloodline is you, you run into this difficulty that all the power then begins to reside in them. And time after time, we see it in virtually every nation and virtually every culture that that person then begins to believe that they are indeed divine that they begin to have more of that. And we see that in these four kingdoms, which are truly evil. Uh, the first kingdom uh, is, uh, we see in, in verses 3 through 8, is a lion with wings. And the lion with wings, and, and look at what happens. And then those wings are taken away. They're plucked out, which is interesting. That doesn't happen to the leopard. But the wings are plucked out. And then he's lifted up to stand up like a man. And the mind of a man is given to him. The scholars look at this and they say this, is, this seems to be a, a reference to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar in particular. Remember the story of Babylon and, and Nebuchadnezzar and how he was made to be like a beast, but then he came up onto his feet and, and returned and the mind was given back to him. It specifically says that he, 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 he began to, to regain his mind and he was given that mind. And we see here that this is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, which is the kingdom in which they were at that moment. And the second kingdom is, is said to be a bear, that's laying on its side and has three ribs in its mouth. And the three ribs, as, as we think about that, uh, scholars begin to look at that and say, well, that's, that's probably the Medo-Persian Empire, and the three ribs are Babylon, which they conquered, and then Persia conquered Media, and so you have these three ribs, and there's this devouring of all this flesh that took place. So the second kingdom is the Medo-Persian Empire, which we see with, with Darius. The third empire is, uh, or kingdom is a leopard with four wings and four heads. And the, the idea of the leopard, a leopard and a lion, one of the big distinctions between the two of them is the leopard is much faster. 
not as strong, but much faster. And as, as scholars begin to look at this, they see, well, that's one of the, the, the uh, signature elements of Greece, particularly under Alexander the Great, that it was able to conquer kingdoms very quickly and it was able to move and spread with amazing swiftness. And that idea of having the wings as well makes that much faster. And the final dreadful beast, uh, most believe, is Rome. And a part of the reason for that is it is the fourth beast that seems to be the one that uh, strikes out against the saints more than any of the others, just as Rome was really the, the rise of tremendous persecution, um, not only against the Jews, but also against Christianity. And so that persecution came under Rome. So we have these four kingdoms that are laid out, that there's this prophecy of these coming evil rulers. And so we can spend a lot of time and we can say, so you're saying that's in the past, Whew, right? Except we live in an age with evil rulers as well, right? Isn't that a part of why we're praying for uh, brothers and sisters in Afghanistan uh, in recognizing what's going to happen as, as an Islamic government begins to take over and begins to persecute Christians? and to battle against the people of God and the evil that will come from that. Plus, it's a, a religion that, that turns people away from the true and the living God and damns people's souls, and it's an awful thing. And we begin to see them having to live in, in that environment, and so we pray for them. And so we pray for those who are in such situations, but we recognize that we too will face this at some point in our lives. And how do we face evil rulers. We're here to build God's kingdom while living in man's. What do we do when man's kingdom is led by evil rulers? I think the first thing that we're supposed to do is we have to hate the evil. Romans chapter 12 verse 9 gives us uh, direction regarding that as we read, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor or hate what is evil, cling to what is good. A part of love being pure, love not being hypocritical, is we actually hate that which is evil that we recognize it's awful, that it's contrary to who God is, and we, we build within ourselves a, a, a hatred of that. That's our first step. As we think about Daniel, there is no doubt that he hated these evil rulers and these evil kingdoms that would rise up. There's a Hebrew word for evil, ra'ah, which is an interesting word. It can mean bad or kind of unpleasant or things that aren't, really the way we would hope they would be. It's used in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 41, verse 3, I think. I should look at my notes. That's why I have them, right? Genesis 41, 3. And that's where uh, Pharaoh had that dream. Remember, he had the dream about the, the stalks of corn. He had the dream about the cows, right? And the, the good cows were the fat cows. And then there were the ugly cows, right, is how it's translated. Well, that's the word ra'ah. So what was he saying? They were sickly cows. They, they, they were useless as cows. I'm sure there, there was no milk from them. There wasn't really any meat they could have. They were just that kind of awful cow, that which was inconsistent with the nature of what cows ought to be. And that's what he's trying to communicate. That's part of that idea of bad. This isn't the way that it's designed. This isn't the way that God intended. This isn't how he put it. It's bad. It's not right. But then from that, it can begin to go even further as we move farther and farther away from, from God's design, so that it's used in Genesis 2.17, that there was the tree that was put in the middle of the garden. You can re eat from any of the trees of the garden, but from the tree that is in the middle, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
good and evil you shall not eat. That there's this recognition, that which is good, which is that which God designed, right? Didn't he declare good over all of creation? And then there's evil. What is evil? That which is not consistent with God's good creation. The way that he made it is indeed evil. Evil is inconsistent with God and his good creation. You could even say it's unnatural. Evil is unnatural. If we're going to hate the evil, we've got to remember the source of evil. Um, Notice the unnaturalness of the beasts that are described to us. It's a lion with wings, right? Now, some of you are going, cool, we call it a griffin, right? Yeah, but griffins are not natural, right? First off, the wings on an ostrich can't make an ostrich fly. How in the world is it ever going to do that for a, for a lion, right? Way, way heavier. Not going to work, right? So, so they're, they're useless. But then, not only that, but they're plucked out, right? And then this lion is lifted up to stand like a man. Imagine that. Lion isn't made to stand like a man. It's unnatural. It ain't right. And then he's given the mind of a man. As I think about that, I, I remember, and I think I told you, uh, maybe it was last week, about the safari we were on where we saw the lion. And, and we looked at the lion. It was pretty close to us, about as close as Robin is to me. And so it was right there, and, and we're taking pictures, and it was, it was strong. And we were told by our guide, he said, as long as we're just one group in our Jeep, we're safe because it views us as one creature, and we're not a creature that it wants to eat. But if one of you stands up, or if we had a baby along who would cry, suddenly now one of us is set apart from the rest, and it's able to focus on us, and now we're prey. We kept still. <laughs> We stayed close to one another. But it also tells me the lion's not real bright. I was looking at a bunch of people in a Jeep and it thinks we're one being. Seriously? What, are we pieces of hair that are just kind of flopping? I don't know what the deal is, but you know. But imagine if it had the mind of a man. Now I'm concerned, right? The power of a lion with the mind of a man, this is problematic. It's unnatural. Then you go to look at the bear. And the bear, it isn't a bear that's just, just up and strong. It's a bear that's lying on its side. Just on one side, for some weird reason. It's just in this awkward position. And it's eating these ribs. And, and typically, particularly black bear, the, the primary food source isn't, isn't always meat. It'll eat anything, but it tends to, to fill up on other things for the most part, and then we'll go there. The grizzly is a little more uh, meeting the eat. It'll take down the, the elk and things along those lines. But um, to begin to understand that it's got those, those ribs, and, and it's just to be devouring meat. And not that that's, that's totally unnatural for, for, for them, but here we have this bear on its side, and it just isn't quite right. And we go to the leopard, and this gets really weird, right? Really weird. We got, we got four wings on the back of a leopard, right? Again, we've already talked about how unnatural that is. Add to that now four heads. That ain't right, right? I mean, I've seen two-headed snakes, and that ain't right. But a four-headed leopard, there is just nothing that's normal or natural about that. And that's what the vision was to communicate how unnatural, how inconsistent with God's creation, how evil these kingdoms were. And the fourth one, he just says, is dreadful, right? We have no idea. Then it's got, got teeth of iron, and oh yeah, then it's got like ten horns. Oh, but then there's this other horn that pulls three of them out by the roots, and then, but it's got an eyes and a mouth, and it's talking, a talking horn. This is unnatural. It's, it's evil. 
And that's a part of the picture that, that he wants to communicate to us with this, this imagery is just how unnatural this is. And we can spend a lot of time, and I can throw out all kinds of assertions that, you know, this horn is this, and that horn is this, and, and these wings are this, and, and we're just guessing. We're just making stuff up. What is undeniable is the sense that all of these beasts are unnatural. They're ra'ah. They're evil in that, that Hebrew sense. But we begin to look at what they do, and we begin to say that they're evil even beyond just that they're unnatural particularly as we see them making war against the people of God, right? So what is the source of this evil? Ephesians 6.12 tells us, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Where's the source of evil? It's Satan himself. It's the devil. That's the source of evil. That's how evil came into our world was through him. So that we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that our enemy, the devil, roams about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Not seeking someone to scare with his roar, but seeking someone to devour. There's a story in Mark chapter 9 about the work of, of the devil in the life of a small child as this individual is talking to Jesus in verse, uh, I think it's 17. And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. This horrible thing is done to this child. We tend to, to have mercy upon children, right? Women and children first. We recognize that. That's, that's a proper uh, value that we see. Satan doesn't have those limitations. Let me throw the child down. And we read in parallel passage that not only would this happen to the child, but it would frequently throw him into water or throw him into a fire. Because that's the kind of being that Satan is. So that Jesus can tell us that he was a murderer and a liar from the beginning, right? In John chapter 8, I think verse 44. He tells us that he's a murderer and a liar. A murderer and a liar. His first murder was committed in the garden when he told the woman, you will not surely die. And he tempted her to eat the forbidden fruit and look at the result of that. The horrible losses of life that have occurred because of the devil. Remember the source of evil. That helps us to remember to hate it. And then let's mourn. Look at Daniel, verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Verse 21. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war, and the saints were over, with the saints and overpowering them. Verse 25. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and He will... In tend to make alterations in time and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. And verse 28, at this point the revelation ended, as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale. Daniel is deeply disturbed by what he sees. The focus, particularly in the second half of the vision, where he sees the 
the fourth beast waging war against the saints of the highest one distresses him greatly. He's mourning at these four evil rulers that are going to come, and we must learn to, to mourn at that as well. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The mourning that he's really talking about is us who are mourning over this oppression, mourning over sin that is in this world. As we begin to look at the harm that is done by the evil leaders in this world. Think about the harm done by dictators. Look at dictators like Stalin, who I believe uh, figures that are estimated for him killing his own people, upwards of 20 million people. Unbelievable. Mao Zedong, something like 30 to 40 million. We talk about Hitler and 6 million Jews, and there are many others that were all slaughtered by these horrible uh, dictators. And look at the, the damage that is done and the cruelty that is accomplished. We even look at uh, dictators of, of our age, and we think of Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe, who decided he was going to uh, eliminate the Indabeli people. And so he brought the military forces against the Indabeli and saw almost 20,000 of them destroyed. 20,000 individuals killed. Imagine that. And the person who did those killings, who led the army at that time, was Manangagwa, who's the current president of Zimbabwe who had the coup and took over for Mugabe. So we have these dictators that continue to lead and to oppress and to destroy people. But it's not just there. There are evil leaders in homes. Abusive leaders, abusive husbands, abusive fathers. And the damage that they've done by the psychological abuse of controlling their family of getting their family to believe lies, to think that they're, they're to make their family think that they are absolutely crazy until they really believe that and they feel themselves completely dependent upon this evil individual who is hurting them at every occasion just so that they can do whatever they want, who are harming their children in, in unspeakable ways. And the damage that is done to these children and these, these women predominantly who face such abuse can go on for a lifetime. So that it's not uncommon that I have conversations with, with older women who talk about the horrible things that they experienced even as little girls and it continues to haunt them even into old age because of the evil leaders who are harming those under their care. And frankly, it can happen in the church. One of the things that distresses me horribly is to learn of abuse in churches, to learn of abusive pastors who are not only abusive to their families, but to their flock. One individual telling me the story that they were part of a church and they were required to ask the elders permission before they could sell their house and move. And they believed that it was right because the abuser says you are to support or submit to your elders. And so they think that's what they're supposed to do. And the damage that is done and the inability of them to make their own decisions and their, their uh, predilection then to, to fall into another abusive relationship is huge. And this is the evil and this is the harm that is done from evil leaders and we should mourn. It should break our hearts each time we hear about a story. It should, should make us rise up and say, I want to be a warrior, as we sang. I want to be brave to stand for that person who is being so oppressed and to stand against the evil that is being perpetrated at whatever level it may be by these evil leaders. 
We need to hate the evil, remembering the source and mourning. But we also need to hold on to hope. We need to hold on to hope. I like G.K. Chesterton writes of hope in his book, Heretics. He says, as long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength at all. Right? Amen. Amen. It's only when it's hopeless that hope is a strength. To begin to, to, to grasp that. This prophecy that Daniel sees was made under Belshazzar, probably around 550 B.C. Talks about four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Rome will fall, if I remember correctly, we have some, some great historians, somewhere around 400 A.D. Seem about right? Give or take, yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's not like there's a day, oh, no more Rome. <laughs> so that was on Tuesday. Today's Wednesday. We're good. It, but, but somewhere around there. And so just doing the math, we got some math people, and I'm going to go rough. It's about a thousand years, right? It's about a thousand years. A thousand years. What was happening in the world a thousand years ago? A lot different than now. Can you imagine knowing that from then till now, there's going to be evil rulers over the people of God? These evil rulers ruled over the Jews and then ruled over Christianity for that amount of time. What a discouraging, awful, hopeless setting that Daniel sees this vision. And yet in this vision, he sees these words. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Verse 26 and 27. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. We face evil rulers while we're living in man's kingdom. And as we face them, we're tempted to lose hope. Okay, let's be really, really honest. We're tempted to lose hope just when someone from the other political party gets elected, right? Which we always assume means they are evil. Because if they're not in my party, they have to be evil. Because everything that I believe in is righteous and holy and pure. And everything else is evil. And frankly, that's how we deal with it. That's one of the problems that we've got right now and the cynicism that's in us. But we can't handle it when someone with just a simple, different ideology is in control. What are we going to do when evil rulers, truly evil rulers, rule over us? I hope that we will not lose hope. But instead, we will remember Daniel and we'll remember that God is our hope. Francis Brooke wrote a hymn 
entitled My Goal is God Himself. I first ran across this by reading through My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Oswald Chambers. And he has this to say. This is the first verse. My goal is God Himself. Not joy, nor peace, nor even blessing, but Himself, my God. Tis his to lead me there, not mine, but his at any cost, dear Lord, by any road. I find that to be one of the more profound verses of any hymn that I've ever read. And so powerful. Do you notice that before God tells Daniel that there will be an everlasting kingdom for the saints, before he sees that, he shows him himself. Before showing the blessing, he points him to the source of blessing. He turns his eyes to the Ancient of Days. He turns his eyes to the Son of Man who stands before the Ancient of Days. He turns his eyes to God because our hope is not the blessing. Our hope is God. And we put our trust in Him. The the Ancient of Days, in verses 9 and 10, is the Father, God the Father, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Here we have this magnificent picture of God the Father seated upon His throne, unaffected by the four kingdoms and the four beasts. But He brings a peace in the midst of all of that turmoil. He's called the Ancient of Days, which reminds us that He is eternal. That idea that at the moment in which time began, for there was a time when time was not, when time began, God was already existing and speaking time into existence. There was a moment when space became a thing, when space came into existence, when there was the up, the down, and the out. And this, this spatial existence in which we have the dimensionality of our lives came into being, and it came into being in the palm of His hand. The entire infinity of our created universe is all outside of Him, or He is outside of it. He's the Ancient of Days. He's the one who's before all this, who's outside of all of this. Then it says that He has the... The white vesture and, and, the, um, and his hair was like pure wool. His, his vesture was like white snow. Does that remind you of anything? Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They'll be like wool. That promise of purity. And our God is pure. We have these evil rulers who are, who are all inconsistent with God and with His good creation, but God Himself is not. He is pure. He is holy. He is right. He is righteous. They're just not right, but He is all right. 
and to begin to recognize that, that stability that we can look to him, not to the rulers who are around us, but we can look at him. We can look not at the evil, but we can look at the good, the ancient of days. He's seated upon a throne. There's fire and myriads and thousands of people all around attending him. People, it's not just people. Thousands and myriads. And there's angels. Imagine this picture of God upon his throne and, 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 and it's on fire and there's a river of fire and then there's all these people that are around serving him and praising him and giving glory to him. It'd probably be kind of loud, right? All this is going on because it's right. You remember Jesus' word as he was entering into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry? And the Jews said, hey, 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 tell them to be quiet, not praise you. And then he essentially says, this is not exact words, he said, nah, that won't work. Because if they don't praise me, it's really going to freak you out. Because the rocks and trees are going to start praising me, and that just is going to really make you go crazy. Because it, because it had to be done. It was the rightest thing that had ever been done. When you're in the presence of God, you've got to go to that place of praising and glorifying Him. And all of creation at that moment is gathered around God and they're giving Him the glory that is due His name and He's showing His glory in that moment. And creation is responding to His glory. The Ancient of Days. And then we see, man, we see the court sat. The court, this is His court. They all sat. And the book, the books were opened. The books? Was he reading Piper to him? <laughs> the books. Revelation chapter 20. This is the same picture in my mind, or potentially at least the same image. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fell away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Remember the beginning of Revelation? That's the book that's sealed up, and they're terrified, but it's been unsealed by Jesus Christ. And now the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world has opened it up, and now, now, now the book of life is opened. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up their dead which were in it. And the death and Hades gave up dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here we have these books that are opened. The same books, I believe, that the Ancient of Days is there. And he's having them opened because he is a just judge. He is a just judge. He gives us first this picture of God the Father. And we see his, He's eternal. We see that He is pure. We see His glory. And we see that He's a just judge. And then we get a picture of the Son of Man. Verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Son of Man is the Lord Jesus Christ. Before he becomes a man, so he is now just the Christ. But he's the Son of Man. 
Isn't that the term Jesus used for himself? He called himself the Son of Man. Why? Because he wanted to communicate something to us. He wanted us to understand that he relates to us. He is a man just like we are. He's the Son of Man and the Son of God. He is both. And as the Son of Man, as one who is like us, He walks into this throne room and the glory is all around and the myriads are there. And He walks up to God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and He's presented to God the Father. Why? Because He's being presented as our mediator, who is the one who is God and man. Therefore, He can represent man to God and He can represent God to man. He comes as our mediator and presents Himself to God the Father as the Son of Man. And what's given to him is dominion and kingdoms. Was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. This is given to Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign one. He's given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. You know what that reminds me of? Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen. And Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There is no great commission without verse 18. There's no verse 19 and 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, if Jesus hasn't already been given the authority. But Jesus has given that authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. It's already been given to him a dominion and a kingdom. And here we see that taking place. And then we read further that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. They might serve him because he's worthy. We've talked about that. He was worthy to open the book. Right? That book of life. He was worthy to do that. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Who did he purchase? Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom. He's been given a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. The image from Daniel is unmistakable, isn't it? From this vision that Daniel was given. This is precisely what is that song of Revelation chapter 5. And I ask you, where are you looking? We really need to be clear about that. Because as we face the evil rulers, it's easy to look at the rulers, isn't it? But God wants us to look at the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. God wants us to look at the Godhead instead of at the evil rulers. Because whatever those rulers might do, God is between us. He is the one who is ultimate. And hope is lost if we look at the rulers. Hope is lost if we look at the evil that is around us. There is no hope in that. But hope is found when we're in the midst of the evil, in the midst of the evil rulers, and we see God still seated upon the throne, and we see His Son, Jesus Christ, as our mediator interceding on our behalf. And then we have hope. Hold on to that hope as you hope in God, because He will deliver you. He will deliver you. In verses 18 through 27, we get a picture of this deliverance as we begin to see how it's going to be worked out. And, and the first part of the, the, the vision, 1 through uh, 8, really is just seeing this these horrible rise of these kingdoms. And then we see God, and then we see how it works out that even in the midst of, of these horrible rulers, yet God 
is the victorious one. And even so, he will deliver his people. He will provide for us an everlasting kingdom. Look at verse 17. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. This is the promise. Is their kingdom going to last forever? It will not. But yours will. Ours will last. He will deliver us. He will give to us an eternal and everlasting kingdom. He will also rescue us. Verse 21. I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. I love this word. Until. It's almost a, a but, right? It's almost a but God. Until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Even though we may suffer, even though we will be persecuted by the evil rulers, there will come a time when the ancient of days will step in and we will be rescued. That the suffering is not the end. The hardship is not the end. We don't know how it will happen. We talked last week about the fact sometimes he doesn't shut that lion's mouth, but he always rescues us. He always rescues us because what happens when I die here? No, really. That's true truth. Is I will be with my king forever. He will justify us. Look at verses 25 and 26. He will speak out against the Most High. This is that horn. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into His hand for a time and times and a half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and His dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. The picture of Joshua the high priest and his justification we looked at from Zechariah, I think it was last week. And you remember that Zechariah or Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan was there accusing him. That's exactly what we see from this horn. This horn is accusing the saints of the Most High. And he's listing what their sins are and he's accurate. And he's wearing them down because he keeps listing the horrible things that we have thought, the horrible things that we have said, the horrible things that we have done, the reality that we've left undone, the very good that God intended us to do. And there we are condemned and the horn is speaking that condemnation and it is wearing us down until the Ancient of Days enters into judgment. And his judgment is the horn is cast away and the saints are declared forgiven, and righteous. For you see, every deed that we've ever done is also written in a book. We have that picture of the books that we saw from Revelation. And every deed that we've done, all of our sin is written down in a book. It's probably thicker than this. All of it is there, every single sin, written down. It can't ever be erased. And what Jesus has done is He's had the Father lay upon Him all of those sins, all of them, completely. And it's only Jesus who is God who is able to absorb the intensity, the punishment for every one of those books which have been laid upon Him. That He would cry out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? And they're placed upon Him. And He knows why. And He absorbs the wrath and He goes through it. And He's okay 
But all of Jesus' deeds have also been written down in a book. Every righteous act, every righteous thought, every righteous word have been written in a book, and he laid those on us. So that as we stand before the judgment of God, he declares you forgiven and righteous. Not with a righteousness based on your deeds, but a righteousness that was done by Jesus. And it's all given to you because your name is written in that book of life. Not only do we give an everlasting kingdom are we rescued and justified, but we're also glorified. Look at verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole of heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Does that throw you off? I mean, is it right? Is my version different than yours? Wouldn't you expect then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness... Of all the kingdoms and the whole of heaven will be given unto Christ? But that's not who it's given to, is it? It's given to you. You will be glorified. All of your sin will be gone. It will be completely gone as far as the east is from the west. And you'll be clothed with the very glory and righteousness of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis says that if we could see each other now for how we will be that day, we're tempted to fall down and worship one another. And that's not just exaggeration. That's truth. And that's your future. If you are a saint of the highest one. Some of you are going, oh, there it goes, pastor. Now you've got to bring in works. Now we've got to earn it, right? We've got to somehow become saints. That means, if I remember correctly, we've got to do at least one miracle, right? We've got we to have this uh, perfect life. We have to have this extended ministry. And uh, we've got to have this uh, uh, conclave of, of bishops come together to decide it, right? No. What does it take to be a saint? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? No, really, do you? If you do, you are a saint. You are a saint of the highest one because he has now set you apart and you belong to him. That's what saint means, set apart. You might have come in here today not a saint, not trusting in Jesus. I'd like to invite you to be certain that no one walks out of here today who is not a saint, but that every person here, right now, you would say, Lord, would you forgive me because of the death of Jesus? And would you accept me only because of him? Make that commitment this day. And your future is deliverance, which means an everlasting kingdom. You're rescued, justified, and glorified. Daniel's telling us how to build God's kingdom while living in man's. And a part of living in man's kingdom is that we will face evil rulers. That's just the reality. It's what we will experience. But that's not just doom and gloom. Because in facing the evil rulers, what we learn is we can hate the evil. And we can hold on to hope. And that's how we can face the evil rulers as they rise up in our world. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are faithful and you will not let us go. Thank you that you are our hope 
that no matter what else happens in this world, you are unshaken, you are unmoved, you are seated upon your throne in all of your glory, and all that matters is that. Father, I pray that you would make us faithful as we live our lives and face even the evil rulers. And help us, O God, to face them in faith and to never lose hope. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.